0: It's my argument that if you're going to be much of a leader, you have to be a follower. You have to learn how to follow in order to learn how to lead. Does that make sense to you? So how good are you at following? Are you a good follower? Do you follow instructions well? Are you one of those people who breaks out the menu and you start, you start looking at it exactly and you, you, you go get the cookbook and you open up the cookbook and you follow the directions precisely? Or are you a, a little bit of this, a little bit of that? You know what, this might help that. That kind of a cook. I'm more of a throw-stuff-in kind of a cook. I probably only looked at three or four recipes in my entire life. Once when I was trying to impress my wife um, to get her to be interested in being my wife, um, I, I followed the dean's wife's recipe for lasagna specifically and very carefully. Once when I was making gravy for my children, my wife was gone, and uh, we didn't have the appropriate ingredients. We didn't have any regular milk, so I... I tried using Better Than Milk to make gravy, I'm just telling you, don't do that, don't go there, it doesn't work, it's sweet, it doesn't taste good, don't try. And so since it didn't taste right, I decided to add a little mustard to it to help that flavor kind of balance out the flavor of the Better Than Milk, and then then that made it a little sour, so I added a little peanut butter to it to see if I could get that to work out. None of that worked. None of it worked. My kids remind me, they don't realize that it started with the better than milk. They always tell me, remember that time you put peanut butter in the gravy? (laughs) Are you a good follower? How do you do with it when it's your time to follow something or someone? We've been talking for uh, quite a while about leading a God-directed life. Leading a God-directed life implies that you're following, right? Right? you're following God is directing God is leading God is pointing you and you're following him you're doing as he asks you're listening for his voice obeying that voice following him living a God-directed life is a choice it's a life you choose you don't float into a God-directed life a God-directed life doesn't just happen to you you can't just sit back in your easy chair and a God-directed life takes over your life a God-directed life is a choice God never interferes with your free choice even when it's a better choice. Instead, He calls you and challenges you and directs you and leads you and gives you the word and tries to help you through the power of the Holy Spirit hear His voice and follow after Him. So this morning, I would like to look at following God, and then I would like to look at some folks who believed they were following God. And yet, missed him altogether. So I want to start with a couple of texts. First, Proverbs chapter three, verse six. This is a promise from God. If you, if you, in all your ways, acknowledge Him, He shall direct your paths. Is that good news for a person who's trying to follow Jesus? If in all your ways you acknowledge Him, if you you focus and you trust and you lean, you lean on Him, He will direct your paths. Number two, Jesus said in John eight. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's Jesus saying, look, if, you, if you'll follow after me, life will be better. The abundant life is down this path. The best life, salvation, resurrection, the new, the new earth is down this path. No, no other path leads you to those things with God and those blessings from Him. So, <clears throat> I want to talk about these guys for a little bit. We brought these guys up when we were talking about uh, about the, the the return of Israel to the to the promised land, and we talked about Ezra the scribe, and we talked about the birth of this idea. These guys had chosen a god directed life right right Kind of hard to say isn't it you're kind of wondering because the pictures of them, the pictures of the Pharisees in the scripture are they're definitely mixed, right? It's not all positive. In fact, it's mostly negative. But they, they seem to have decided that they wanted to follow after God. You understand that these guys, these guys are excellent Sabbath keepers. These guys are very good at, at keeping Sabbath correctly. In fact, the, the Jewish rule, the Jewish law was that if you could keep the Sabbath twice perfectly, if everyone in Israel kept the Sabbath twice perfectly, Jesus would come, the Messiah would come. The, 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 uh, the other rule was if, the, if everyone just kept the Mosaic Law perfectly one time, the whole Mosaic Law, the whole Torah, then the Messiah would come on, on that mandate alone. They were looking for the coming of Jesus. They were keeping the Sabbath perfectly. They had law upon law upon rule upon rule. You know that you could uh, you could only walk about a kilometer a day, about half a mile or so a day. Uh, it, that was a Sabbath day's journey on the Sabbath. You can only walk that far. But if you, if on Friday you had made preparation and you had gone out a Sabbath day's journey and you'd put some food and some water... Uh, somewhere where you could find it and then, and then went further and the same Sabbath day's journey did it again and did it again and did it again. You could travel all day as long as you could stop in between and, and sit, rest, eat. That became your new home and therefore your new starting point. Therefore you could add another Sabbath day's journey to it. And so you could go on all day as long as you had made preparations for it. My question is, if you got there on Friday, why would you do it again on Sabbath? Just stay. But it's interesting to me that they made all these rules so that you could do it right, so that you could do it perfectly, so that you could never really mess this thing up because it was very important to get it right. And then they made rules to get around the rules. Does that sound like anybody you know? Just checking. I think they're trying, at least in some manner, to lead a God-directed life. So how did they get to this point? Jesus says, Matthew 23, and Matthew 23 has several of these. I was going to read them to you, but they get depressing after a while. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. And I picked this one intentionally because... It seems to me the outcome of our attempts at doing everything right on our own, in our own strength, by our own authority, the outcome is that we become mean and angry, fault-finding, nasty people. And we shut and bolt and lock the gates of heaven against our fellow man. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. The rest of the text, by the way, says, neither do you go there either. He says you will travel across the sea to make a convert, and they don't make him worse than yourselves. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees. scribes we've met them before we'll look at that in a minute scribes that was what Ezra was who came back remember he was Ezra the scribe scribes these were teachers of the law these are people who knew the law who were whose life was spent learning so that they could teach others what God wanted from them, what God expected of them, how to lead a God directed life. Pharisees. This is a special group of people. We'll also look at their history in a little while, but they, they came up by the time we see them um, working, uh, walking around with Jesus. If they've been around for about 170 years. Um, very much engaged in trying to keep the nation of Israel going in the right direction. There are about 6,000 of them, 6,000 of them, according uh, to the records in the first century. Very elite spiritual people hypocrites Well, a lot of those around we'll get back to them but i want to look at them uh and maybe maybe see see if we might extend a little compassion and grace here remember we said being a mature disciple is learning to have that spirit of grace and supplication where the the first response to whatever comes at you is a spirit of grace and then the next response is to pray for them Spirit of grace and supplication. So let's see if we can extend a little bit. Uh, Let's walk a mile a little bit in their shoes. Before these guys, do you remember what Israel was doing? The northern ten tribes? Before these guys show up on the scene, before the Babylonian exile, what was Israel like? Well, Israel was basically completely openly disobedient to God, right? Right? The Northern Ten Tribes were a mess. They were worshiping idols of all kinds. They were building alliances with pagan nations. They were sacrificing to other gods in the name of Yahweh. They weren't even following God anymore. They were so far out there that God had to say, look, you, you're not representing me anymore and you're claiming me. And so I, I have to pull, it, pull away from you. And when I do, the Assyrians are coming and bad things are going to happen. And exactly that did happen. Israel had swung so far away from God, they, they, were, they were misrepresenting Him on the planet. They were closing and locking the doors in a completely different way. The people who were supposed to be representing God, the people who were supposed to be talking about God, were misrepresenting Him so badly. That people couldn't even find their way to God through them. And so he withdrew his protection. And the Assyrians came in. Hauled them off and they disappeared. They're called the Lost Tribes of Israel. So how were the southern tribes? How was Judah doing before they were taken into Babylonian exile? Before Ezra, Nehemiah, before the Pharisees, before these folks come along? How was that group doing? Well, if you read your Bible... Turns out they were openly disobedient to God too. Turns out they were worshipping idols as well. Turns out they were building alliances with pagan nations as well. And it turns out that they were sacrificing to other gods in the name of Yahweh, just like their forefathers, just like their neighbors, just like their brothers and sisters in the north, who God had walked away from, and they'd been hauled away by the Assyrians. And so they go off into Babylonian exile where they are for 70 years. During those 70 years, we find the birth of the synagogue. You know what a synagogue is, right? It's a gathering place. That's all it is. In fact, uh, in in Hebrew, they actually call it a Knesset. It's It's a gathering place. A synagogue is a place where people gather. And they gather for the por- purpose of worship and discuss- discussion. Part of the deal of having the synagogue when they were off in Babylon was trying to establish a strength of faith within the people who were in exile, trying to help them understand who they followed, who their God was. And so they're, they're teaching them, they're going into the synagogues, they're reading the scriptures, they're discussing it back and forth. And a tradition of, of, that, of, of that process and a tradition of, of praying out loud and praying together and specific prayers for the people and for the Israel and for the nation. All of those things come out of that, that exile exile in Babylon, the synagogues are born there. There's, there's gathering places before, but this tradition of having a place of worship this specific for this reason is born while they're off in exile. So, so the synagogues are born while they're gone. Were they better when they came out of Babylon? They weren't idolaters anymore, right? Um... They weren't openly rebellious against God. When God sends them prophets, they don't kill them. Those are all improvements. Here's what, here's what Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Joshua talk about. You're building your own house instead of God's. It speaks of sort of a, a confused order of things right uh, they his, his description one of the prophets descriptions is you live in paneled houses while God's house remains desolate they were marrying the women of the other nations around them remember this is one of the big things that happens in Nehemiah Nehemiah makes them uh, put off the wives that they gathered from all the other nations they were marrying into the community around them they were beginning to to identify more with the culture around them they were listen they were beginning to identify more with the culture around them than with God And they're making sharecroppers out of their their neighbors and their fellow Jews. They They were giving loans to people at an interest rate they couldn't pay and then taking their land and making them work that land on their behalf. So how are they when they come back? Well, they're not idolaters. They don't kill the prophets. But are they... Leading God-directed lives. I have to be a little bit careful with this one because these ones kind of get closer to home to me. What are my priorities with uh, with how I live and how God's house is? How, what are what are my priorities where the culture is concerned? What are my priorities with the way I treat my fellow man? Now I'm, it's starting to get a little more personal for me now. It's, it starts to feel, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to be an idolater. I do I don't think so I don't maybe not you? I'm not going to be openly opposed to God maybe privately maybe inside my own head sometimes surely wouldn't have killed one of his prophets would we? Well, Ezra, the scribe, remember the group, who's the group? Jesus is saying, woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. So, so he hits this guy. Ezra was the scribe. He comes and he, re- he reforms the behavior of the people, returning them to God. Nehemiah comes along. The two of them help restore the wall of Jerusalem. This, this, is, this is good stuff, right? This is a good guy doing a good thing, correct? Sent from God, yes? Yeah. Yeah. So, if we were to take Ezra as the sort of founding father of the scribes, would we consider them a good group to begin with? Are they on a good mission? Are they doing the right thing? Are they, are they doing something that is laudable by God? Yes, they're training the people. They're learning for the whole purpose of training the people and what it means to follow after God, right? This may be the anchor, the, the, the home base of pastors and teachers right there, scribes. Where did the Pharisees come from? A little bit harder to find out. I told my family the other day, we were we were talking about reading obscure things and boring things. And now um, one of one of the sons was talking about some other stuff he was reading. And another one had given him and it was just boring him and he couldn't keep going. And, and I told him, I, I spent a couple hours reading about the Maccabees and the uh, intertestamental period and their family and their heritage. And. All of my family thought I was maybe a little nuts too, but this is why. I want to know where the Pharisees came from. Do you know what Hellenization is? It doesn't mean they got to become Helen. Hellenization is not, you are now Helen. Hellenization comes from the Greek term, to learn to speak Greek. It comes from the idea, from a Greek idea meaning to speak Greek. Hellenization is the idea, the the concept that you become more Greek. You begin to take on the Greek culture. The Greeks were not just conquering the world physically. When the Greeks conquered the world, they wanted to conquer the world culturally. And they succeeded. You and I have been Hellenized. Whether we know it or not, we've taken on a tremendous amount of Greek cultural norms as our cultural norms. This was the idea that the Greeks were doing. They were going out within their nation trying to make the people around them in their empire behave like Greeks. It's funny to me, when uh, Christianity first started spreading around the world, you know how we did it? First thing we did was we took those people who were running around in, in loincloths and we put some clothes on them. You look at these pictures of folks who converted to Christianity... Back in the 1800s, and you would swear they didn't convert to Christianity. They converted to Americanism or Britishism or something like that. They'd be out there in suits in the tropics with bowler hats on. And you're like, what happened to those guys? Well, we we thought that becoming a believer in Christ meant that you had to become a a person who looked like us. Well, the Greeks thought that if you were going to be a part of their empire... You had to look like them. You needed to behave like them. If the, 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 res, the, the results of turning you all into good Greeks would mean that peace and quiet and everybody would be getting along just fine. So they began Hellenizing the world. When they came to Israel and they came to Judah, Judah that a lot of the Hellenization was accepted. It was okay. It wasn't a big deal. And the Sadducees especially embraced this idea and embraced the Hellenization. <clears throat> Excuse me. But they came to the Jews and they told them that they couldn't do their offerings the way they had been doing them. And when they started trying to force them to do their offerings the way the Greeks did them, they came to a little town west of Jerusalem. This is the home of a family who would be later known as the Maccabees. When the, Maccabee just means the hammers. When he got to this town... They came with uh, the official of of, uh, a man named Antiochus the fourth comes into the town and he says, all right, everybody, this is how you're going to do your offerings from now on. And he starts forcing them to do the offerings in the way the Greeks did. And this guy stands up, this leader, Matthias of this family stands up and he says, no, we're not doing it that way. Forget it. We don't care what you want or what you think. We refuse to do that. And so one of the other people from the community wanting to make peace with the Greeks rushed forward to make the offering and the men of the Greeks wanted them to and Matthias killed him right there. And he killed the envoy from the Greek leadership as well, from Antiochus. And thus started the Maccabean Revolt in 178 BC. I know you've been just dying to hear this all week, right? I promise I have a point. The Maccabees would fight against the Greeks for the next 40 years, and as they kept fighting and fighting and fighting, they slowly gained the upper hand as the Greeks began to weaken, and they, they gained their freedom. Joining them in the fight was a group called the Hasidim. The Hasidim are still around. Hasidic Jews. The Hasidim, you'll, you'll, you'll know them, usually they have the ringlets on the side of their faces. The Hasidim joined the fight. And they joined the fight because they wanted Israel to to stay within the bounds of Torah, to behave more in the way they should, to do what God wanted them to do as described in Torah and as they interpreted it. The Hasidim joining the fight, this thing grew stronger and stronger. The Jews gained their freedom in 140 and the Hasidim became known in 135 as the Pharisees. See, I told you I had a point. That's how we got the Pharisees. So by the time they're talking to Jesus, they've been around for 135 years, 140 years, 150 years, 160 years. Do they have a pretty solid tradition? Yeah. These folks that we meet in the New Testament come out of this root, this this need for Israel to, to not become lost in the culture around it. They were cultural reformers. They were a people trying to hold a standard. Trying to keep Israel, Israeli. Trying to keep Jews, Jewish. And trying to resist the, the pressure from the Greeks to become something else. This is a bad thing. Was that a bad thing? See, now we're, we're, we're a little torn because these guys, these Pharisees, who, who I really don't like when I find them in the New Testament, set off on a good purpose. They set a, a compass in a good direction. The scribes were there to teach the people about what it meant to follow God. The Pharisees came along and they were trying to keep Israel from being lost in their cultures, from turning into Greeks and losing their identity completely. In fact, most of what we know, most of what we understand as Jewish today really comes out of Pharisaic traditions. Most of the, the processes and the traditions of Judaism in the modern times come out of the traditions of the Pharisees. They're the ones who taught Israel to be Israel. They're the ones who taught Judah to be Judah. They're the ones who taught these people to be Jewish. Jewish is Pharisee. And yet when we find them in the New Testament, Jesus is saying, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You have shut up the heavens to men, and neither do you go there yourself. You killed the prophets in the blood of your fathers. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. So what is their legacy? Certainly monotheism. A belief in heaven. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. The spread of the synagogue. uh, By the time the New Testament is written, there are estimates of over 600 synagogues just in Jerusalem. And much of modern Jewish practice. So how do they get to the woes? How do you get from the point of trying to do the will of God to a state where you have closed up the heavens for man till Jesus is looking you in the eye and you can't see him? How do you get from there to there? the pharisees began to emphasize one simple idea they began to emphasize the need for perfect behavior that became their emphasis they began to emphasize the need For perfect Sabbath keeping. You see, once you have a belief that if the Sabbath is kept by all of Israel twice, two times in a row, perfectly, then you must, you must go and try to get everybody to do it, right? And then when you're not getting it done, you have to start defining why you're not getting it done. It's why that you couldn't pick up a rock. You couldn't put a rock in your pocket and carry it on the Sabbath. Because if you were carrying a rock in your pocket, if it was over a certain weight, which was a very small weight, then that rock would be a burden on the Sabbath. But if you gave that rock to a child and the child was holding it and you were carrying the child, well, then it would be okay because you were doing an act of mercy on behalf of the child. And the child was carrying the rock, not you. It reminds me of the idea of being able to wade into the water at your knees or below on the Sabbath because anything more was swimming. You laugh because some of you were told that. You laugh because some of you disagreed with it and some of you disobeyed that. I was I was a young pastor. I I, I don't come from a Seventh Day Adventist background. Um, I, I I didn't really have a Christian background much when I became a Seventh Day Adventist. I didn't know about all the traditions, and I was a pastor already before I found out about this one. And I was up in the Marble Mountains with a group of kids backpacking. It was Sabbath. We were having a great afternoon. We were camped by a waterfall about a I don't know probably as high as the edge of the building right there, and the waterfall is. Rolling off of there, this beautiful tree shaded spot. It's a hundred stinking degrees outside, and the kids come to me as the ignorant leader of the group and say, Can we go swimming? And I look at the place they want to swim and I look at the feel the temperature outside and I said, Sure. (laughs) And all those kids all knew I wasn't supposed to let them do that. Dove in. They were swimming on the Sabbath. And when my fellow pastor came back from where he had been, I don't remember where that was. Pastor Dale Galusha, by the way, the the, uh, president of the the, uh, Pacific Press. Dale comes back and he goes, Why are the kids swimming? I said, Taught. Dale said, we don't usually let them do that on Sabbath. I said, oh, I didn't know. This is, you know, I'm a pastor and I didn't know that. Sometimes it's better to be ignorant. And, and, and I said, so he said, we don't usually let them do that. I said, so what do you do? He said, we usually just let them wade up to their knees. And I said, why? And he gave the best answer I've ever heard. I don't know. By that point, it was too late. They were already in the water, so we just decided, all right, you know, they'll just have to ask extra forgiveness today, I guess. (laughs) Isn't it funny how when we when we set a model for how things must be done, we start to make rules that don't make sense? The rules start to get out of hand. Like if you if you're carrying a child, who's carrying a rock, then you're not carrying a burden on the Sabbath. The kid's heavier than the rock. But, But no, it's an act of mercy. What had happened to the Pharisees between trying to keep Israel from losing their culture and their religious identity to becoming what Jesus is so terribly opposed to in Matthew 23 is that they began to emphasize a model of spirituality that had nothing to do with the love of God, had nothing to do with the transformation of their heart, that had nothing to do with change at all. It just had to do with checking off the rules and keeping the regulations. Boy, isn't it easy to go there? Isn't that an easier Christian experience? Don't we all want a list? I wish I could just have a list. You know, I'm not even sure I'd care how long the list was. No, that's probably not true. After a while, I'd probably get fed up with the list and quit. But the crazy part about it is we all do this. Ever tell you, kid, you can't do that? And your kid, pertinent, impertinent little person that they are, says, why? And you don't have an answer? What's the father's answer at that point? Because I said so. So what did God do when Israel was straying? When Israel was wandering away? When Israel was losing themselves? He kept intervening. He kept coming back. He kept sending the prophets. He finally sends them off into a, into a Syrian captivity. You know what he tells Israel when, he, when they go into a captivity? Read Hezekiah, it's, or um, Hosea, I think it's chapter 5. It's his little chapter. You'll know it because it's real short. He tells them, and we've, re- we've reviewed this in this church a few times. He tells them, the Syrians are going to take you away, and you're going to lose the promised land, and you're going to re- lose the priesthood, and you're going to lose the temple. And when you're there, at last, you will turn to me. You see the promised land and the temple services and the priesthood and all of those markers for them being special and different were the only things they really cared about anymore. And what had happened to the Pharisees is the, the obedience that they defined was the only thing that really mattered to them anymore. And a relationship with God and the transformation of their heart is getting lost completely. You know when the New Testament tells you to be perfect even as your Father in Heaven is perfect? You, did you read? The, you ever read the context for that? It says, Our Father in Heaven brings the rain to fall on the evil and the good, the sun to rise on those who love Him and those who hate Him. Be perfect like that. If you want to read Christ's object lessons, the perfect... The the character of Christ must be perfectly manifested in his people before the the end comes. Read the previous three pages, please. The love of God in the heart of man is a transformation God is desiring. That we would emulate Jesus in the way he loves his neighbor and loves the world. Self-sacrificial love for one another is the call from both from both scripture and Christ object lessons for a perfect life it's not whether or not the rock in your pocket is too big to be carried on the sabbath how do we get there same way we start to emphasize the things we're doing instead of what is being done to us stay with me we start to emphasize The things we're doing instead of what is being done to us. We start to emphasize the actions that we can control instead of what Jesus is doing in our hearts. We start to look for ways to make ourselves better instead of to make ourselves more self-sacrificing, to make ourselves behave, not even that, to make ourselves open to following what Jesus is saying. He who began a good work in you will see it through to the end. Who began the work? Jesus did. Who sees it through to the end? Jesus does. If you're up in the air about this business of what you have to be when Jesus comes, can I just tell you it's his problem, not yours. If your job every day is to surrender to him, his job every day is to get you ready to go. If if you're frightened about this, just surrender to Jesus. Let him do what he's doing. And anybody who wants to argue with you about this, just tell them that. The Pharisees were excellent perfectionists, and Jesus says they're horrible people. Did all the Pharisees get those woes? We're all 6,000 included in the count. Woe unto you, all 6,000 of you. Are there any exceptions? How about Nick at night? Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling class. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And he came to Jesus at night. Is he included in that? Why not? Because when confronted with Jesus, he engaged him. When confronted with Jesus, he chose to follow Jesus. How about Simon? We don't really like this guy. He's called Simon the leper. He's called Simon the Pharisee. This is the place where the alabaster box takes place in his house. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, one of the what? Pharisees. Jesus went. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table and a woman in the town who lived a sinful life came with an alabaster jar and you know the rest of the story. She broke it open, poured it on his head, poured it on his feet. You know what I find out? Jesus is extending himself to the Pharisee. I'm pretty happy about that. Because I have a strong pharisaical tendency. I have a strong tendency to want to do what's right because it's right. I want to be right. I want to get it right. Strong leanings in that direction. And Jesus is extending himself to, to people like me. You know what happened? Israel got so far out of line that they weren't even being represented by God anymore. They weren't even they weren't even representing God anymore. They were so far away that he's going to send the Assyrians. And he says, hey, you know, all that stuff you think makes you cool that, you know, the the temple, the priesthood, uh, all those things that you think make you better and special and all that. They're gone. They're gone. They're all gone. You're going to be in Assyria. They're all going to be gone. And then perhaps you'll turn and see me. You know what happens when the Pharisees have a a death grip on religion in Israel, when when the temple rule, all the things that are being done around there is, is within their grasp and the people of Israel are just hearing one side of the story. God shows up and you know what he says? Look at me. He said, look at all those things you're doing aren't getting you, are they? They're making you crazy. You're trying really hard to do the right thing. You're not able to do it. Look at all the difficulty that's causing you. Look at how crazy your life is. Look at how you're trying to multiply things for other people to do to make you feel better. You can walk into a place of prayer. Lift up your hands and say, dear God, I am so thankful that I am not like other men. Thank you that I was not born a woman. What? What a way to start your prayer. This is my introduction. God, I'm better than everybody here. At least 50% of them, they're all girls. If you have to start your prayer by setting your grade for God, you're in trouble. And that's where the leadership of Israel was leading the people of Israel. Jesus calls them the blind, leaders of the blind. And what does He do? He shows up. And he confronts them with himself. And he says, all the things you think make you special don't make you special at all. What makes you special? What makes the change? What makes the impact is that you engage with me. He says, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, if you've not been able to see yourself in the story, try word number three. I look at these woes, I've looked at in my entire life in ministry, and I've always said, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, it's all one thing. But it really isn't. The scribes had their own issues, Pharisees had their own issues, and we hypocrites have ours. We claim to be something that we're not. We claim to behave in certain ways, we claim to uphold certain standards, and we continuously struggle. George and I talked about a person who came to his pastor who was 120, 130 pounds and 6'5". He said he told the pastor there are only two perfect people in the world. Perfect Christians. I'm one of them. And he gave the pastor another name. And George didn't disclose to the other person. He said it's a famous person in Adventism. And the guy said, I'm so thin because I've discovered all the, things, all the bad things in the world you just you can't do. He said, I, do you realize you can't eat grain? You can't eat rice? You, you can't eat this and you can't eat that. He started going down all the things you couldn't do. He started listing off all the things he didn't do because that made him special. He said, the reason I'm so thin is because I don't eat all those things. He said, I do, I do have a little failing. He said, uh, about every two weeks I fall away. I, I lose my way. He said, about every, about every two weeks... I eat two rice crackers. Now, folks, that's an extreme example, but it's our example. That we work really hard to try to do what Jesus has done on our behalf. And we find ourselves failing again and again. And we find our spirituality weakened because we are its engine. Stay with me. Listen to this again. We find our spirituality weakened and ineffective because we are its engine. We are its driving force and not Jesus. It's conversion we need. It's transformation of heart we need. It's to be a different kind of person from the inside out that we need. There are lots of things the scripture gives us guidance and obedience and leadership to do, and lots of ways that we should walk according to Scripture. But if none of those things leads from a transfer comes from a transformed place, then we will simply wander off into legalism and pharisaism. And we become mean and angry and nasty. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. At many times, in various ways. When Judah was out, the prophets. When Israel was out, the prophets. Over and over again, he spoke to to his people through the power and authority of the prophets. And now, in these last days, Through his son. What is the transforming relationship? It's the relationship with Jesus. What is its transformational power? The cross. When the cross is personal. When it's yours. When he did that for me. It transforms who we are on the inside. And that makes all the difference in the world let's pray Father God there are there are such broken places inside of us there are so many ways that we fall down so many things that aren't the right things Lord teach us like you to respond in grace to everyone we contact. To open our hearts to every person whether they are friend or foe in front of us. Teach us to pray for those who behave badly toward us. To extend grace to all those around us. To accept grace from you. And oh Lord, please transform who we are. Make our hearts different and new. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.